Imagine what a shock that was for the first century Jew especially, who's looking for this conquering king to come, to rout all of, his, all of Israel's enemies and to set up the kingdom, and to be told that no, not yet. He first comes as a suffering servant. He came to be made low, to be humbled and humiliated for his father, yes, for his people. He would die on a cross. Harsh, offensive death. Be buried, all hope seemingly lost, then raised from the grave, proving it's all true. God was made low and He calls us to make ourselves low in following Him. To make Him preeminent in all things. And that's kind of where we're going to focus. This morning we're going to focus on why Jesus came before looking next week on the fact that He came and how He came. Today I want to look in uh, Philippians 4, 1-6. to You know, I've been doing that all week. And I've actually been flipping to Philippians and looking for this passage. It says right here, Philippians 4, 1 to 6. Because I've been confusing those two passages all week. I don't know what it says in the bulletin. Pray for me. Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. And talk about true unity. And that's what Christ came to bring. To create a church, a united church with a purpose. And we're going to look at this this morning from his example to then his uh, requirements to us. But I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 to 6. And this is where we begin the application section. How does the gospel change our lives? We'll talk more about that in a minute. But in, in Ephesians 4, 1, it says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And I want to keep reading, but I won't. Let's stop right there. Father, take your word and apply it to our hearts. Empower me and help me. Help me to preach your word. Preach it faithfully. Help us to hear it and apply it faithfully. Strengthen. Convert. Humble. Convict. Do what you need to do in my heart and in our hearts as your word goes forth. We want to be rested in Christ and living for Christ. We want to be glorifying you and enjoying you. We want to be set free from every sin that so easily entangles us. 
So help us this morning to look to our Savior, to focus on our Savior, and to be shaped in His image through Your Spirit applying Your Word to our hearts. It's in the holy name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I want to read another text for you. It's a little different sermon this morning. As you can tell just by me reading the passage, um, we're not going to exhaust that passage. Uh, but I have a, a concern. I think it's a, time, it's a timely time to address that concern as we're focused on the coming of Christ and our salvation. And I just want to set an example for us by reading uh, John chapter 13, 1 to 15 and verse 34, and then talk a little bit about that and uh, move from there to Ephesians. See, I said Ephesians. That's good. I'm, I'm getting free of that. But look at John, if you would, in chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the, pass, pass, the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly what he's doing. And as we see what he does in this passage, this is a picture of his entire Humiliation, his entire ministry, his entire coming. It's a picture of that. It says that knowing exactly who he was and where he'd come from, where he was going, it says, verse 4, He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel and tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with the towel that was wrapped around him. In other words, he took the position of a, the lowest slave to wash their feet, to set an example for them before he was crucified, buried, raised, and ascended. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. See, there's still a remnant of pride there that needs to be dealt with. Notice how compassionate Jesus is, but truthful. Jesus said, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now watch Peter flip. I love Peter. So Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you. Can you imagine the Son of God coming and humbling himself to the extent that he dons the, the clothing of a slave and washes the feet of the one who's about to betray him. He knows exactly who it is. When he had washed their feet and put his, on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? 
You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Let's skip down to verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. It's the Christmas season. We're rightly looking and remembering the birth of Christ. We're rightly thinking about that and teaching that to our children. But why did He come? Well, His words were to seek and to save the lost, right? to build His church against which the gates of hell would not prevail. He came to deliver a people from themselves and make them like Himself. To save and unify a people who would live first and foremost for Him and who would sacrifice themselves for one another. See, the enemy's strategy, one of the main strategies against the church, strategy of war, is to divide and conquer. Jesus' goal and what He will do and is doing is to unite and use and conquer through His gospel. But the enemy's strategy is to divide and conquer. And listen, <clears throat> as I look around here, and especially as I look around out from here at the church at large, that strategy is working. To some extent, it's working. And I want you to listen to me. Because harder times will come. And if we maintain our current trajectory, church will splinter like dry wood in the face of what's coming. See, what COVID has revealed is that the church is vulnerable. We know that. Raise your hand if you're glorified. Not one, right? We're all being sanctified. We all are still holding on to some of our own camp and, and plan. And just like Peter, Lord, you're not washing me. I see what you've done, but I'm not doing that. Not, not in this way. See, like the culture, the church is losing the ability to agree to disagree. Every disagreement is an offense, is an assault, is an attack. And instead of being able to love one another and disagree and stay united and fellowship together, many in the church depart to go look for a place where the hard stuff is not going on and where there'll just be a bunch of people that agree with them. And you know what? You never find it. You never find it. The church has lost its stability to a great extent because the culture influences the church. And all the outflow of the ridiculousness of postmodernism 
and everybody being right and everybody people are divide off into camps in the world and shoot arrows at one another and if we're not careful in the church we divide off into groups that we agree with and that agree with us and we're not gentle and compassionate with those who disagree therefore we tear at the unity of the church and we need to be careful about that see there's a lot of things about doing church together that are secondary issues and not primary issues think about homeschooling for one I think it's a good idea I think it's much harder to get a good education in a secular school now but this possible and people are doing it and what we can't do is, is just stand up front Homeschool is the only way, and you're wicked if you don't do it, or vice versa. See, we, we, we can't splinter over something like that. We stay united. We help one another. Vaccinations is another place. We're seeing a lot of pub about vaccinations these days. Some within the church will absolutely never take a vaccination. That's okay. I'm telling you that's okay And it if you have that conviction. Some will take all of them. Some will take some of them. Some will wait a while. <laughs> But we can't divide over what we think about vaccinations and we can't make others feel less than who disagree with us. I mean, more recent. COVID is a hoax. No, it's real. The government's doing the right thing. The government's doing the wrong thing. We're drawing lines that Christ doesn't draw. We need to be able to live together in unity even when we disagree. All should wear a mask. And if you don't wear a mask, you're not loving your brother or sister. Nobody should wear a mask because masks are harmful and assault on freedom and they're stupid. Listen, the mask issue is important, but there's science on both sides. You can't just say follow the science, okay? Listen to me, if you, dis, if you separate from a brother or sister in Christ because of what you believe about a mask, shame on you. You need to repent of that. And if you try to make them feel less than because they don't agree with you on masks, shame on you. Stop that. Those things are important and we will all have opinions about them, but we dare not divide over stuff like that. And I'm afraid for you, hopefully in a holy way. I'm afraid for God's church because if you think this is hard, you wait to see what's coming. We're being tested and we're failing the test to a large extent. I'm not just talking to this room, I'm talking through that camera and whoever will hear me. And we better get a grip on it. No, I'm not Joel Osteen, but I'm not going to lie to you. Things are going to get hard to be a believer, and to be a church. And we better get our sights set in the right place and live there. Listen, different opinions are inevitable. And to one, See, in one sense, they're good because as we talk with one another and love one another and learn from one another, you know, we grow when our differences of opinion are over, you know, word things. We grow when we're together and we talk about those and we, 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 we come, you know, we change a lot. 
I mean, eschatology is a great place to think, right? You might hold a bunch of different views on eschatology, last things, um, as you go through life. But we need to be careful about dividing over secondary issues because it is sin. If masks are dividing you from your brothers and sisters, it is a sin you need to repent of. Listen, say this. If you think masks will protect you and you want to wear a mask to worship, or if you think it will protect another person, please wear it. We don't, we're not mandating either or here. But today I want to take us back to the fundamentals. Just to show us what the foundation is. So that we can aim in the right place and love one another when we disagree and not hurt the mission. And not offend our Savior. Why did Jesus come? What is the nature of our unity? What is the unity we are to fight for? How do we fight for it? What is worth separating over and what is not? That's why I chose Philippians 4. Ephesians 4. Because I think Paul addresses it there. So I want to discuss true unity from Ephesians 4. See, it's call. God commands us to have it. He calls us to it. The basis of it and the purpose of it. Really simple. Main point. God calls us to true unity on the basis of His redemption and for the good of His mission. Notice who's calling and whose purpose and who's, who should, whose will should be shaping us. He calls us to true unity around Christ on the basis of that redemption and for the good of His mission. And look first at the call to true unity. Look back in, in Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> I'm not trying to be heavy this morning and bring you down, but I'm telling you, this is weighing hard on me. Because I'm seeing people I love separate over things they shouldn't be separated over. If you're watching over the live stream, don't think everybody in church is fighting. They're not. But people are drawing lines where they shouldn't draw them for the sake of unity or creating disunity. And it concerns me. So let's look to Christ this morning and remember why He came. First, the call to true unity. Look, look in Ephesians 4, 1-3. Two sections here. We'll do a little bit of review. Hopefully I can get through all this before 3 o'clock. No. Look where it says in, in, uh, in Ephesians 4. I therefore, therefore, kind of sums up chapters 1 through 3 and springs towards chapters 4 through 6. Chapters 1 through 3, 1 through 3 are the indicatives of the faith. The statement of what has been done for us. God's purpose, you say gospel if you want to in, it, in, in, in 1 through 3. You know, and then how should that gospel, how should that grace, how should that shape our lives? Look back in 2, 8, and 9 if you would. I would encourage you to memorize this for one of your memory verses. <clears throat> but speaking of us being trophies of God's grace, and I'll let you go back and read chapter 2, verse 8. Now watch this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? The entire grace by faith salvation, including the faith that you've been given by the Spirit applying the gospel to your heart, granting you regeneration or new life so that you repent and trust Christ. By grace you have been saved. You did not deserve it. God's purchase of you through His Son applied by His Spirit. For by grace you have been saved. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. What? Your works. Not a result of your works, a result of Jesus' works. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. And to the extent that I have boasting or pride left that needs to be sanctified because my salvation, I deserve hell and condemnation, and Christ has come and has saved me, and He gets all the glory of that. He has saved you. If you're trusting in Jesus this morning, it is your salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, revealed in Scripture alone, and regulated in Scripture alone. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised the third day. He appeared to more than 500 people at a time. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him, trusts in Him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Your salvation is free to you because it was very costly to Christ because He came and took on the clothing of a slave. He came in the likeness of sinful men and women. Sinful man, obviously representing sinful men and women. And he paid the penalty for our sins. Salvation is through trusting in him. And I'm just asking you, if you're trusting in him. And if you are, then this grace shapes your life. One through three shapes four through six. The therefores of the gospel. Look at verse 10 in chapter 2. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works are works done in the power of the Spirit according to the Word of the God. They are flowing out of grace and faith, focused on loving and honoring Jesus, sacrificing myself to live for Him, for you, for His gospel. So see, 1 to 3 is about this salvation that we have in Christ. This salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then chapter 4 is the application of the gospel. I heard Cindy and others say the therefores of the gospel. How does this good news of God's grace to me in Christ now transform my life? What is God's requirement of me because He has sacrificed His Son for me? And that's where Paul is going now as he begins to apply the gospel, have it shaped. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We too being willing to take the lowest place and be the humble slave or servant and wash feet of our brothers and sisters. Listen, the church gets that kind of wrong. We, we focus on the action and a bunch of people will sit around and wash each other's feet and not really understand what they're doing or why they're doing it. It wasn't really what he was commanding us to do. He was commanding us to serve one another because he came not to be served but to serve. Follow him in loving and humbling ourselves to serve one another and to help one another. Take, being willing to take the lowest place. Now watch what Paul does as he calls us uh, to true unity and then he'll give the foundation of that. In verses 1 to 3, he's, he says, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord. He, I know something about what I'm calling you to, sacrificing myself for Jesus. He says, I urge you. 
I strongly exhort you. Kids, what is it when your parents grab your face and they start talking to you? Not hard, and they don't hurt you, but they want your attention. Listen to me. That's usually not meaning you're about to get rewarded. Not in a good way. If you ever hear your middle name, kids, pay attention. If your parents say your whole name, usually you're in trouble. Paul is tr getting our face. He's saying our middle name. He's urging us. He's beseeching us. He's crying out to us to do something. He's strongly exerting us to do something. And there's a command here that is applied both negatively and positively. We'll see that. And there's some elements to doing that. And again, this could be a series. I'm going to walk through it quickly. But Paul is saying, I urge you. To do what, Paul? Look what he says. To walk. What is walk in Scripture? It represents life, right? To live. Peripateo. To walk means our life. How we're to walk is how we're to live. I urge you to walk in whatever way you feel like walking because you've been forgiven and you've got heaven as your home. Mm -mm. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner worthy. How do I do that? Well, the negative side, verse 2, right, is bearing with one another. That sounds like that's fun, right? When, when God's calling you to bear with something, it's indicating that it's difficult. That it's not easy. That it's probably chafing against you. So the, so the negative side of the command is to bear with one another. It's an exercising of self-restraint and tolerance. It means to put up with one another, which implies it's hard. And the positive side is being eager, verse 3, or being diligent, striving to do something with intense effort, being intense about maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice, we don't create the unity. It's the unity created by the Spirit through applying the Word of God, through lifting high the Son of God and showing us who He is for us and calling us to follow Him. And we have to maintain it with intense effort to sacrifice ourselves for Christ and His church. Sum, sums up what Ephesians is about. The unity of the church. Jew and Gentile, one new man, one church under Christ to be walking in a manner worthy of Christ, which means we fight for unity and we press into it, especially in the places where it's hard. Especially in the places where it's hard. He calls us to bear with one another. If that was easy, He wouldn't have to say it. Because we're a bunch of very different people, aren't we? With very different ideas, very different... I mean, you know, before Christ, bad. But even after Christ, we, we, we're all not in the image of Christ. We're all not glorified yet. So we're going to rub one another the wrong way. And we have to be okay with that and we have to press into that if we're going to have the unity that we're to have. It's hard... To hang around with sandpaper people. Isn't it? Be real. But that's what he calls us to do. See, our natural tendency is to just avoid those people, get in the group that we like and are comfortable with and agree with and just stay there. Hold the rest at arm's length. That's not what Christ did. 
We were all sending paper people to Christ. Worse, way worse than that. And he ran into it. Sacrificing ourselves for Christ and His church. Look back at verse 2. How does this happen? What, what, it, what clothing do we need to put on in order to be able to bear with one another? Look at the very first thing he mentions. With all humility. Humility. Means I need to get over myself. I'm humble in the Bible way of speaking and I'm um, poor in spirit in the Bible way of speaking if I have a low view of myself in comparison with righteousness, in comparison with the law, in comparison with Christ. I see how for short I fall so I have a realistic view of who I am and how I need to walk. It's the opposite of arrogance and pride. True humility sees that it owes everything to God and His grace. And it's an undeserved grace. True humility sees others as better than themselves. Philippians 2. It's like Jesus. Look at the cross in your mind's eye. Your Savior hanging there naked suffering a horrendous death and not just the physical, taking the curse and wrath, do your sin upon Himself. Because we were lovely? No. We were His enemies. We were people that rub us raw. You know, the sandpaper people. We, we were against Him. And yet He came to save us. He was ridiculed and suffered Yet he was perfectly righteousness and he, righteous and he did that willingly. He sacrificed himself for us. Augustine said this, Humility is first, second, and third in Christianity. And when we get in trouble is when we're proud and territory defending and condescending or even just quietly sort of rolling off into the comfortable place and staying there. It's not humility. Listen, we can measure our growth in Christ by our humility. Sees others as more important than self. Willing to sacrifice ourselves. Think about Christ and taking off, putting on the clothing of a servant, picturing what he was going to do. That he humiliated himself by coming, living under his own law, coming in the likeness of sinful flesh, giving up his rights in his rightful place. He did not give up his deity. He humiliated himself by adding a true human nature, right? But he embraced the hard things. For us, so that we might have Him and His salvation. See, if we're truly humble, the next two things are going to play out in our lives. Look, with all humility and gentleness or tenderness. A humble person is a gentle person, is a tender person with others. Think about, how do you pick up an egg? You just 
No, you have to pick it up gently. The spirits of people all around you are easy to crush. I wish we weren't as weak as we are. Sticks and stones may break my bones, and names will kill me. Our words are a powerful force for unity or disunity. We have to be careful how we use them, and that includes all your posts and everything else. Christ is Lord of Facebook as well, or Twitter, or TikTok, or whatever the rest of that stuff is. You can see I'm really hip and engaged in the social media world. I can barely handle looking at Facebook. Gentleness will be the outflow of one who is humble, patient, waiting on the Lord and others. Listen, if I'm right, they'll eventually come around, but I shouldn't even be, except for foundational issues, thinking that way. The test is how you treat those who disagree with you. Are you gentle and patient with those with whom you disagree? Especially in God's church. Those who are not like you. Maybe even those who don't like you. In God's church, we're to be humble and gentle and patient with one another, bearing with one another, waiting, unified, focused on Christ. See, you, you're trusting in Jesus. You, me, all of us have to be careful and get up being calibrated by the gospel so that we're not calibrated by self, so that we hopefully are living for Jesus and seeking to build one another up. That no harsh communication and no ungraceful communication comes out. That we seek to be unified with our brothers. We are to work hard to bear with one another, to be long-suffering with one another. Out of a gospel humility, we need to be patient and gentle with those who disagree with us. Not separating from them over secondary issues. Another place. Now watch this. Colossians. Look how Paul encourages the Colossian church by telling them who they are first. What have been the benefits of their redemption? How has Christ coming blessed them? They're a new people with a new name, a new identity, and therefore they're to act in a new way. Colossians 3.12-14 Put on then. Now watch. He tells them first who they are. As God's chosen ones who are holy and beloved. That's, if you're trusting in Jesus, that's who you are. Chosen by God. Holy and beloved in Him. Redeemed in His Son. Cleansed of all of your sin. Declared righteous before Him. You are His child empowered by His Holy Spirit. Put on as God's chosen ones who are holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Like Jesus. Kindness. Humility. Meekness, strength under control, not weakness. And patience. Now here it goes again. Bearing with one another. Yes, it's hard. It's hard for you to bear with me, probably, especially right now. It's hard for, you know, it's hard for us to bear with one another. Especially during the hard times. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. 
What's the standard? As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So that's the call. The call to unity. Let's look quickly at the basis of our unity. In 4 to 6. This is the basis of true unity. This is the basis of what he's calling us to. Of our being shaped by the gospel and dwelling in one accord. Not a Honda. Together. Verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. The God and Father of all. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. See, the theme here is unity. And that's where, it's interesting that he starts here in applying the gospel, isn't it? After chapter 3, he starts right here, urging us to fight for unity. Unity is the theme. Imagine a football team. And a football team comes together, offense and defense, under a coach who has a plan. Right? The defensive coach have plans, you know, whether it's 3-4 or 4-3, you know, we're playing a dime package or a nickel package. I know you may not know all that lingo, but there's a lot of different ways to play defense. There's a West Coast offense and a run-and-shoot offense and a, you know, an old ground-and-pound offense. And every one of those football players probably has a different idea on what kind of plan they should execute. But as a team, they come together under this coach. They humble themselves to adopt his plan with the goal of winning the football game. And they play together. They work it out when they disagree. And they're unified. Each one has an assignment. And to the extent that they perform their assignment, they find success. When we really get the gospel and are living daily in gospel reality, we have a passion for self-denial and unity for Christ. We have a perfect foundation and it's not us. Look at the rest of this passage. Whenever you see something repeated, you know it's emphatic. Whenever you see something repeated seven times, emphasis has pegged the meter. Okay? There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father in all, who is over all and through all and in all. One, 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 one. Seven times one equals one. Gospel math. <laughs> we have a perfect foundation. I'm not going to go through these individually as much. I don't have time. But you can go back and read and study this. But the foundation of our unity is our redemption in Christ, right? So look at this. The Trinity is here. One Father, verse 6. One Son, one Lord, verse 5. One Spirit, verse 4. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is our foundation. One Church, verse 4. One Body, the Body of Christ. One Baptism of which water baptism is a sign. One baptism, the Spirit baptizing us into the body of Christ. 
The Holman gets it right there. Gets the preposition right. Baptized by one spirit. Into one body. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. You have that slide, Joel? We were all baptized by one spirit. Into one body. Although we were very different. And all made to drink of the one spirit. One baptism and one hope, verse 4. Resurrection, new glorified body, new heavens and new earth, Romans 8. See, we have one God who has one plan of redemption for one church, giving us one hope. That is the foundation and basis of our unity. We can disagree about a lot of other things. But we best... Unify around the fundamentals. And they are there. One God. One church. One hope. And then verse 5, one standard. When it says one, the faith, and Corey talked about this when he was preaching through Jude, when it mentions the faith in this way, one faith, it's talking about the revelation of God. The, all of the revelation, the faith that we have. The known and received body of truth about Jesus and salvation. It's not just... See, when we see faith, we think subjectively my faith and trust in Christ. But this word faith is also the faith. When The faith is the entire faith. The body of revelation coming from God. His word. Christianity, if you want to put it that way. See, this is our rallying cry. This is the, around what we can unify. Even if we have differences of opinion on a lot of other stuff... We, we, we have first-tier issues that we unify around. And we're patient and humble and gentle and compassionate to one another about the things that we disagree on. Spiritually and biblically, yes, and even more so, things outside of this. Like, you know, whether or not the government's doing the right thing and whether or not COVID is a hoax and whether or not masks are a good idea. Come on, people. God calls us, He urges us, He commands us to be humble and gentle and patient and one, bearing with one another and maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I'm not saying don't hang with the people you like and, and who agree with you and you enjoy, but make it a purpose to include those who don't. Make it a purpose to reach out to those who are not part of the crowd and to fellowship and not just have one thing, but have one thing being the church. So God urges us to unity. He commands us to have unity. He commands us to have unity around Him in His one church, having one hope according to one standard, which is His Word, rightly interpreted in Christ. And then He has a purpose for this unity. Let's just look quickly at Philippians, which I seem to want to look at anyway, so... Chapter one. one. Oh, by the way, I haven't said this in a while. So my wife will, yeah, corny. Yes, it is. You know how to remember the order of, of Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians? Gentiles eat pork chops. <laughs> You're welcome. You'll get that straight from now on. <laughs> Look at the, uh, verse 27, the, uh, it hits where we sort of hit with this text today. 
because of Christ and in Christ, because He has humbled and humiliated Himself for us, He's taking the low position, then we are to follow Him in that. And another place where it calls us and tells us what our manner of life is to be. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. It doesn't mean we agree about absolutely everything, but we are standing firm, one mind, in the fundamental things in Christ. That you're standing one in, firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. Listen, this, this, more of this is coming. Opposition to, your, to God's church is coming more intensely. So let's get it straight now so we can walk through that in a unified way. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict you saw that I had and now hear that I have. You know, Paul said, I'm a prisoner. He's, he's writing. What is the purpose of our unity? Look back in verse 27. Standing firm in one spirit, one mind, side by side for the faith of the gospel. Locked arm in arm for the faith of the gospel. On mission for Him. Not, we don't, we don't, we're not shooting for uniformity. We won't always be alike. But in Christ, unity. We're in union with Christ. We're saved by Christ. He, we're one family in Christ, so we can walk together even as we're being sanctified if we have our focus and our heart and our mind in the right place. So that we'll be arm in arm for the gospel. The day's probably coming short of revival that, that some of us might get locked up for preaching this word. We'll have to preach it. For sharing this word, we'll have to share it. For teaching this word, we'll have to teach it. If they hated him, they're going to hate us, and they do. And we don't have a shot at walking through that in a way that glorifies him if we're all off splintered in our own groups. Sacrifice yourself. Sacrifice your secondary opinions. Sacrifice whatever you have to sacrifice to bear with one another. I'll leave you with four shots. Just quick sentences. I know I'm late. Application one, stop separating into groups you agree with on secondary issues. Bob Newhart. Have you seen that, that counseling session with Bob Newhart? The, basically, the style of Bob Newhart is stop it. That's the counseling method. I guess I'm kind of doing that this morning, but on the basis of what I've already said, right? Applying the gospel. Stop separating into groups that you agree with on secondary issues. May those groups be multifaceted of people that agree, disagree on secondary issues, but agree on the fundamental issues in Christ. Intentionally reach out in fellowship with new people. And here I'm talking about whatever it is for you. Reach out to sandpaper people. People that rub you the wrong way. See, we're all different. Intentionally reach out to new people 
even those with whom you disagree on secondary issues and even on fundamental issues with the gospel. Neighbor. But see, bear with one another. Fight for unity. Do everything you can do to abolish separate groups in God's church. Now we'll have small groups and things like that, but they won't always be the same, and we're developing intimacy with, with one another in the church. But we don't need to just get stuck in one place. We need to foster that church-wide. So intentionally reach out and include new people. Number three, this is where I'm really... Please learn again, if necessary, to agree to disagree over secondary issues and remain friends. People are losing relationships over masks. I hope that sounds silly to you. You know why? It is. Gosh, we can talk about these things and we can disagree about these things and we can learn from one another if we're humble and gentle and compassionate and kind to one another. But the bigger picture is don't let the world infect the church so that we can't have good arguments. So that we can't have disagreements and talk about them. So that we don't encamp off in self and say, if you disagree with me, you hate me. You call me wrong, I have nothing to do with you. Well, sometimes it's because you were nasty in the way you called them wrong. But we need to be able to learn to disagree and talk about the things we disagree about as well as the things we agree about and do that in unity and press on with the mission, not separate. Last one is reorient your focus on Christ and strive for the unity of church, His church and mission. Reorient your focus on Christ and who He is for you so that you can then, like Him bearing with us, you can bear with others around you, especially the ones that disagree or are sandpaper people to you. They're precious to Christ, by the way. All of us. And Christ calls us into unity around Him. Not uniformity, but unity. But He definitely calls us into unity that flows out of a humble, tender outreach in response to one another. Humble, gentle, and patient. You remember how we started Jesus giving up His rightful place. Many of His rights. Willing to come and wash our feet. He took the lowest place to save us and set an example of how we're to sacrifice for Him and for one another. And He says this, I'll read it again in verses 13 to 15. You call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If I have taken the lowest place for you, you do that for one another. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. I guess my plea to me this morning and plea to you is for you to adopt the gospel rule. Do unto others as Christ has done unto you. Treat one another the way you have been treated. And the way you have been treated is amazing grace.
Amazing grace. His gospel is big enough that we can live together in unity, that we can talk about the things we disagree about, but that we focus on the fundamentals and stay arm in arm and go forward with His gospel. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And follow me, Jesus says. I'll lend it there. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I, I, pray, I pray that you would forgive us for the ways and times that we have not diligently pressed into maintaining the unity of your body. That we have the times when we've not been humble and tender and gentle and patient with one another. Cleanse us, Lord, from our sin and from our protecting our own territory or in whatever ways we're living for self, Lord. Deliver us, forgive us, cleanse us. And empower us, Lord. Refresh us and renew us in, in love for you because of your grace to us in Christ. In a devotion to you, in an in a understanding of you and the way you've humiliated yourself for us. And help us to be willing then in response to that because we love you. Keep your commandments by loving one another the way you have loved us. By loving neighbor as we love ourselves. By being really more about and all about your gospel. Lord, your word causes pain in us sometimes. But it's a loving thing you do. It's a good thing you do to convict us and shape us and mold us. And I pray, Lord, shape us and mold us into a, a more unified people, a more Christ-centered and Christ-focused people who are ready then in the power of the Spirit with your word to face hardship, persecution, whatever that might look like. But, but more than that, just to live for you in a way that honors you and loves and honors our brothers and sisters. You said they will know we are your disciples by our love for one another. Multiply and amp up our love for one another because of your love for us, that it might bring you glory in a unified and truly gospel-centered church. Lord, save those who don't know you, maybe who have heard this. Grant us repentance where we need it. Grow us in grace. Help us, Lord. We look to you and trust you and praise you. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Stand with me.